Um, well, I've got a couple things, a couple fun things I get to do this morning. Uh, one is, and they're making their way up here. Um, this is Tyler and Morgan and Joy and Amelia Reisinger. And um, you may have noticed in your bulletin, uh, they've been part of our church now for about a year, um, but you may have noticed in your bulletin, if you uh, picked one of those up, if you didn't, uh, they're available right outside the door there in the back. Um, but you may have noticed we're going to have a potluck on February 5th. And that is because Tyler is a um, Blackhawk pilot for the United States military. And he is going to be deployed to one of the unpleasant parts of the world on the pointy end of the spear. And so his, his dear wife, Morgan, and Joy, and Amelia are going to be here. And what we want to do is um, commission Tyler to his mission and to gather around them as a family and support them and encourage them. Uh, you know, whenever there's a, um, a special forces operation that happens, uh, there's an A team, the guys who were in the field, and a B team that are logistics and support back home. And so what we want to provide is the B team part of that. Uh, here on this end to be logistics and support for this family. So uh, if you haven't met them yet, we encourage you to do that because they are some great and wonderful people. Uh, Tyler's been in the discipleship group with me. Morgan's been in one with Karen. Uh, and uh, and they're a lot of fun. And uh, if anything ever happens to like all of the rest of their family, I'm going to adopt those girls. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> In any case, uh, they are special people and uh, and dear to me and uh, and dear to us here at Silicon Bible Church. So I want to encourage you to uh, get to know the Risingers, but also uh, to participate in that potluck on the 5th. Um, so bring two dishes to pass and, um, and uh, come and, and be a support and an encouragement. So with all that, let me pray for you all. Okay. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Tyler and Morgan, for Joy and Amelia, and for the blessing they are to us, uh, not only on a personal level, but as a church family. Uh, Father, we, we pray for them as, uh, as Tyler is preparing now to be gone for uh, a long time and to, to leave his precious girls behind. Uh, Father, we pray that you would protect him uh, as he is in the field and protect them as they are here. And watch over them all, Father. Give them your grace. Give them grace sufficient for every moment of every day as we know you promised to do. And Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. I um, want to also, um, since Pastor Josh is not here, I get to be Pastor Josh for a second. Um, and do our table talk this week. Every week we uh, go through one of the... Uh, one of the beliefs that we hold to uh, as Christians and as Chillicothe Bible Church, and the one we're highlighting today is about the fact that we believe in a triune God. And so the first person of the, of the triune being, the singular being who is God, is the Father. And so our question today is, who is the Father? The Father is God, the first person of the Trinity. Uh, 
He is the one who sent the Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. And He is the one uh, who through the Spirit of God raised Jesus back to life. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit to bring people into God's family and to make us more like Jesus. If we become uh, followers of Jesus, then the Father who is Jesus' Father becomes our Father as well. So uh, these table talks are available every week and they have questions and opportunities for discussion either uh, around your table at home with your family or, you know, believe it or not, you can get together. COVID's over. You can get together with friends and you can have a cup of coffee and you can have a discussion about things that really matter. Uh, not just, uh, did you see the Chargers uh, blow that lead last night? You can talk about stuff that actually matters um, to your spiritual life and to your walk with Jesus. And so uh, with that, I want to dismiss uh, those of you who are younger to Children's Church. There are several of you here this morning. And Miss Karen is there in the back to take you back and uh, and teach you part of the book of Exodus and learn about plagues and all of that. Um, so that'll be super fun. Um, and uh, and get a hangout with Miss Karen besides that. So uh, one of my favorite things to do. So as they make their way, let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll look at uh, our passage of Scripture here this morning. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are a God who loves us, a God who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and who sent forth the Spirit also to make us like Jesus, the One who has be and You have become, because of these things, our Father who is in heaven. And Father, we recognize that that's not just a spiritual word, but it reflects reality that you have brought us into your own family eternally as your children because you love us. And you delight to give us good gifts. And one of your good gifts is your word. And Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would not only learn what it has to say to us, but also, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would use it in such a way in our lives that we are a little more transformed than we were when we got here. A little closer to looking like Jesus. Because, Father, that is our goal, to grow up to look like him. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, I, I want to share, we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you want to make your way there, and as you do, uh, I just want to tell you this real quick story. Uh, I, I heard this from Pastor Josh, and it was so good and fit so well with, um, with what I wanted to talk to you about this morning that I asked Pastor Josh if I could tell it. Now, I won't implicate the guilty, but uh, but this is what happened. He had a member of his family who dearly loves peaches. They are his favorite fruit in all of the world. And so he thought, well, I know what I'll do. I will get myself a couple of peach trees and plant them in the yard, and then we'll have an abundance of 
peaches. Well, now it takes three years for a peach tree after you plant it to produce fruit. But this being Missouri, they've got the right climate for them. And so he planted this peach tree and he waited three years. And at the end of three years, he got all these beautiful flowers. And he's thinking, this is the year. Oh, and get me some peaches. Well, there were no peaches on the tree that year. And then you're like, well, maybe next year. He waited. Flowers. No peaches. He's like, I, I got to do something. I'm going to I'm gonna have to study up on how to grow peach, uh, peaches on a peach tree. And so he read up on all of the, how you have to prune and, and what kind of fertilizer it needs. So he got the fertilizer stakes and got them put in. And, and that year, he got little green fruits. But then they all fell off in about May. And he got no peaches. So he's like, well, this is promising. I'll do the same thing next year and we'll see what we get. So he fertilized and he pruned and everything. And so, so the next year, he got fruit. He was so excited. And he got a lot of it. But then, harvest came. And as the fruit ripened, he began to eat some of it. And it wasn't good. And he found out that he had a problem. And the first problem was that the trees he had planted were ornamental. And so they were never designed to produce fruit in the first place. And so the fruit that he got, even though he should trick the tree into making fruit, the fruit that he got was not good. And then he found out he had a bigger problem, which was that ornamental pear tree. <laughs> and so all this time, he had been growing what he thought was peaches. For years, he had invested all of this effort in what turned out to be his least favorite fruit of all time, which is pears. And, uh, and ornamental ones at that. So he never did get uh, out of those trees anyway, peaches. So you later found out there's a difference in shape in the leaves, and you can tell what it is that you're growing, and those are pear leaves, those are not peach leaves. They're kind of long and skinny. And uh, anyway, so point being, if you choose to see it, there's a, a spiritual point to this, and that is that things produce fruit according to their nature, according to what they are. Amen? And so an ornamental pear tree is going to produce a lot of beautiful flowers in the spring, but it's not going to produce much fruit that you can eat. And if you're hoping for peaches, you're definitely not going to get that. Because things produce fruit according to their nature. Amen? Now, uh, and what, on top of that, what is produced reveals the nature of the thing that produces it. And with that in mind, I want to turn you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
look at, uh, and uh, we're going to be in verses 4 through 10. And if you're able, if you'd stand as I read. Well, this is what the Word of God says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we are waiting for the coming of the Son who delivers from the wrath to come. And Father, we would pray that we would produce fruit in keeping with our nature as your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, well, what you see in verse 4 and 5 is that gospel, uh, that, that a person becomes a Christian. They become a person of genuine faith in response to God's calling, the proclamation of the gospel, and the Spirit's power. That these things are all working together to produce genuine faith. So, if you look at uh, the text with me, and I just want to ask you a question. Why is verse 4 there? We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why is it there? It's there, first of all, to encourage the Thessalonians. To tell them, hey, we know that you are believers. Um, and also, number two, to let them share in the celebration that the apostles are having over them. Because you see, brothers and sisters, there was no way for the apostles to know for sure whether the Thessalonians, when they first shared the gospel with them and people appeared to respond, whether or not they were really Christians or not. They said they were. They said they embraced faith in Jesus, but there was no way to know for sure. And on top of that, if you remember, there was a riot in Thessalonica just a few weeks after Paul and Silas and Timothy were there, and they all had to leave in the night, like sneaking away, essentially, in the night, getting out of town because of this riot. And they're like, I wonder how many of those people that we gathered in our fellowship were actually Christians. Well, we're about to find out. We're about to find out, and I hope that they don't all just punt the faith because things got challenging right after we left. They knew that persecution was coming. And they knew that that persecution was going to tell real quickly who was in and who was out. And they were fearful that all their work there was going to be in vain. But praise God, that is not what happened. Amen? 
uh, these people had been genuinely converted by authentic faith in Jesus. And so the apostles write here, we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. It's an affirmation of their status as members of God's family. And it's also instruction about how it happened. Now, you may not understand this or know this. You may not even like this. But this is what the Bible says about how a person comes to faith in Jesus. It says over and over and over again, that if you are a believer in Jesus, you did not come to faith in Jesus on your own. That what happened, in fact, is that, look at your, look at your Bible. That first, you were loved by God. And you were chosen by God. And then, there was gospel proclamation. And then you believed and were saved. You see that? It says you were loved by God and chosen. And then the gospel came to you. Verse 5. And you believed. Now, there's more to that process, obviously. But here's what the Scripture is saying to you. When the gospel was preached, it came to these Thessalonians, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Do you know that if you are saved today, do you know why? Because God loved you. And He loved you not only like recently, but from eternity past, He loved you. Before there was a world, God loved you. He saw your face. Jesus saw your face as He went to the cross. He loved you. And by the way, word of encouragement, still loves you. You are saved because God loved you and loves you. And therefore made you His child. He chose you. He picked you out and said, you will be mine. And I will send Jesus to the cross for you. He chose you. He wanted you. And if that doesn't do anything for your self-esteem, it should. All right? It really should. Think about this. You are people who are loved by God. And have been for millennia. How old is the earth? I don't know. Before that, God loved you. And He sent Jesus for you. Because He loved you and He chose you to be His. And then, as the Gospel was preached, it came to the Thessalonians, it came to you the same way. The Gospel was proclaimed to you. And uh, as... as um, as the Scripture says here, it came with not just in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So let's break that down. In John 16, 8, you remember this verse? Jesus said He's going to send the Spirit and He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit's job to help people understand 
sin. That you are a sinner and that your sin separates you from God. Therefore, you do not have righteousness, God's righteousness, and therefore you are on your way to judgment. Right? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when you experience that conviction, having heard the Gospel, you go, you know what? I need to believe in Jesus. Right? And so you become a Christian in that moment in response to the Holy Spirit's power working about working in your life to bring about full conviction such that you believe. Does that make sense? Um, that's what Paul is describing here. That God, who loved you, who chose you, sent Jesus to the cross for you, and then subsequent to that, proclaimed to you the Gospel, and the Holy Spirit then worked, to bring about full conviction of your sin, God's righteousness, and the impending judgment, and that the only escape from these things is faith in Jesus. That's what the gospel message is. And that you then responded to that in faith because you were chosen and loved by God. So that's the idea here. And, and when he says it came not only in word, He's saying, look, it's not just the proclamation, it's not just the announcement of the Gospel that saves people. Right? If that were true, then every single person who comes to the Wild Game Feast would get saved. Right? They would hear the Gospel and they would go, Shazam, I need to believe in Jesus. Right? But we ha and we have a few every year as we proclaim the Gospel to them in whom the Holy Spirit works by His power and they do come to faith. But it isn't everybody. To them, it seems that the, that the Word has come, but it's come to them only in Word. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit's power is not alive in them yet. And so they're not converted. But Paul says about the Thessalonians, the Word came to you not just in Word. The Gospel came to you not just in Word, but in power. In the Holy Spirit, the full conviction. In other words, that is how you were converted. And we know that. How do we know that you were converted? Well, there it results in fruit. Just like if you're really a peach tree, you produce peaches. If you're really a Christian, you produce gospel fruit. You produce the fruit in your life of being a Christian. You produce according to your nature. Now, uh, let's take a breath for a second, okay? The first few verses of this whole chapter are about the joy that the apostles have in their relationship with these people and their gratitude to them as brothers and sisters. And verses 4 and 5 are telling them, look, a big part of our joy and gratitude for you is knowing that in fact you are saved by God's power and grace, that you really are our brothers and sisters, that you really do have God as Father, that you really do possess genuine relationship with God and membership in His family. So that's the, the first chunk. But now the rest of this chunk of the chapter, what he's going to say is, look, and this is how we know. This is how we know. And what you're going to see as you look at the rest of the chapter is six distinct gospel fruit species that prove that the Thessalonians' faith is real 
and it's worth celebrating. The first one that you'll see in verse 5 and 6 is because they have become imitators of the apostles and of the Lord in receiving the word with much affliction and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now think about with, with me for a second. What's being said here is this, that despite the fact that these people were brand new Christians, and they were, the book of Acts, um, talks, chapter 17, talks about how Paul was them on three successive Sabbaths. And we don't know if it was longer than that, if maybe he got kicked out of the synagogue after the third one, and, so, and he was able to be there longer, just three weeks. But regardless, it was not years that he was there in Thessalonica. And these people were brand new Christians. And persecution followed Paul's exodus and the end of his ministry. And these people were under affliction immediately. Virtually as soon as they came to faith in Jesus, all of a sudden they are being persecuted. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about taking an offering and, and he's trying to encourage them based on the giving of these people. And he says, out of their extreme poverty, they continue to give. Well, how do they wind up in extreme poverty? Probably because many of them lost their jobs, were disowned from their families, etc. because they had become followers of Jesus. So when Paul's talking here about affliction, he's talking about the real McCoy. You feel me? Affliction because of their faith. To put your faith in Jesus is to run the very real risk that persecution will be yours at some point in your life. Now I remember hearing that when I was a little guy and I thought, we live in America, that will never happen. I don't say that anymore. I think, I think to put your faith in Jesus is to run the very real risk that you may suffer in some way, large or small, because of that. You may lose family members. You may lose friends. You may lose a job. You will certainly lose the respect and honor of your society if you follow Jesus in any discernible way. But the, the Thessalonians were confronted with very real suffering almost immediately, and they passed the test with flying colors. They not only endured persecution, which no one will willingly do for the sake of Jesus unless they are really a believer. Right? Persecution is kind of the great dividing line between those who are real Christians and those who are not. And if you're not the real deal, you're not willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. And these people are. And that shows their faith genuine. But not only that, they have, an, have the same kind of response, Paul says, as the apostles and as Jesus Himself. They went joyfully into suffering. You remember Peter and John? Uh, they start preaching about Jesus. And, and I love this passage. They get beaten. I don't love that part. Um, that doesn't comfort me, right? <laughs> but, uh, but they get 
they get beaten within an inch of their life by the Sanhedrin, and they leave the Sanhedrin, and it says they went out joyfully, rejoicing they had been counted worthy to suffer on account of the name of Jesus. They looked at it as a badge of honor. They said, if I'm suffering for Jesus, I must be doing something right. Hallelujah. Story is told of John Wesley, by the way. The Methodists hated people for much of their early history because they were very effective in their early history at sharing the gospel with people. And John Wesley was particularly hated by all of his Anglican neighbors, his Church of England neighbors around him. And and it had been three entire days since anybody had abused him or made fun of him. And he began to pray, Lord, uh, apparently I have done something wrong because I've not encountered any affliction for the last three days. At which point, he, as he was riding along, someone cursed him and threw a rock at him. And he praised Jesus. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I know I'm doing the right thing again. Right? That's the attitude. If I'm not encountering any affliction, it must be because I blend in too much. And they rejoiced to suffer. They suffered joyfully. That's a sign that you know the living God. The next one is setting an example for others. You see that in, uh, in verse 7. The Thessalonians became an example of what it means to follow Jesus, not only to the people around them in Macedonia, that's the northern part of the uh, Ionian Peninsula, the, uh, the, the part of Europe there that sticks down into the Mediterranean where Greece is located. The northern part of that is Macedonia. The southern part is Achaia, which uh, that's where you're thinking about Athens, Sparta, uh, Corinth, these places, right? Uh, Greek. Uh, Greece proper is kind of the southern part. He says, not only in, to your neighbors, but even to your distant uh, parts of the same country. In the same way, maturing Christians, people who are growing in Christ, set an example for other people for what it means to follow Jesus. They are able to say, like Paul says, come follow me as I follow Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Come with me. This is, this is what we're talking about when we talk about making disciples. right? Come follow me as I follow Jesus. Do what I do. You give other people an example to follow as you follow Jesus. Verse 8, we see their evangelism. Uh, the Bible says here that the word sounded forth from you. The word sounded forth is a word for a trumpet call assembling troops for battle. You need a loud and clear sound to tell you what to do. And he says their faith is like that. It's going forth in a way that everybody can hear it and they are not muddy about the message that's being communicated. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who died for sin and was raised from the dead. And they are proclaiming it everywhere. Thessalonica was such a great city that was at the crossroads of east and west in the Roman Empire, and if you and it was on one of the major highways, and if you were going through anywhere through there, you had to go through Thessalonica. And as you went, these people are saying, "Hey, 
uh, I don't know if you know this, but you're a sinner and you are separated from God and you need to come to faith in Jesus. And so it's going forth everywhere from there. They are proclaiming the gospel. Evangelism is a sign that you actually know Jesus. Because everybody is an evangelist for something, right? I was talking to, to a friend recently about this, this book that Karen and I are working our way through called The Adventure Challenge. Uh, it's 50 dates that you go on with your spouse. And it's so fun, right? And you, you, know, you don't know what it is until you do it. You scratch off the little box and then you get an assignment to follow. It's so fun. Uh, and then you take a picture and they have little stickers that you just stick your picture in. and you, Then they have a book of memories of all the things you've gone and done. And Karen and I are having a ball doing this, okay? Those of you who are uh, married, uh, those of you men uh, who need a gift idea, take notes, all right? Um, but, it's, but the idea is, the idea behind this is when you are in love with someone, what do you do? You talk about them all of the time, Right? You cannot meet me and not have me talk about Karen. Can't do it. Okay? Within probably five minutes, if you're here at church, I'm going to be looking for her to introduce her to you. Right? Have you met my wife? She's that gorgeous redhead that walks around here. Right? Um, I'm going to talk about her. Why? Because I'm crazier than her. In the same way, if you are someone who has been converted to faith in Jesus, guess what you're going to do? You're going to talk about Him. You're going you're to, within five minutes of meeting somebody, want to tell them about who Jesus is and the difference that He has made in your life. Verse 9. You see, ongoing repentance from their old life. These are people who used to be idolaters. And I'm talking about legit, bow down in front of a statue and make sacrifices to it. Idolaters. Pagans. People who, who bowed down to Zeus and Hera and you know Neptune and whatever, right? People who bowed down uh, annually before a statue of the Roman emperor and said, here is a god. Right? It seems a little strange. Right? It says, but you turn from all of that. As soon as you embraced faith in Jesus, you rejected all of that mess. You left that old life behind and you became servants of the true and living God instead. In fact, the word there is, is literally uh, the word slave. You became slaves of the living God instead. You offered yourself for whatever service He would call you to. Your life has changed. You haven't gone back to the way you used to live. You have been changed and you are serving the Lord. And finally, we see the last fruit 
the gospel of the gospel that the apostles mentioned, which is the fact that they are living expectantly for the Lord's return. These are people who know the Lord is coming back because Paul and Silas and Timothy taught them that very thing that Jesus is has departed and gone to heaven from you know where he is preparing a place for us like an ancient groom is preparing a place for his bride. And when our place is ready, He will come for us and get us. And so they're living in light of Jesus coming back. I'm looking forward to His coming. And I am living my life today in preparation for His return so that I'll be ready when He gets here. They are longing for the return of the Son of God. And they believe in the God who raised Him from the dead. They have put their trust in Jesus because He is the only one who delivers from, do you see what the Scripture says? The wrath to come. Because see, the reality is, men and women, there are two things that will happen when the Lord Jesus returns. For those who have lived their life for Him because they have believed in Him, there will be praise, glory, and honor in the kingdom that He establishes. For those who have rejected Him, and who, as in the parable Jesus said, decided they would not have this man be king over them. There will be judgment and death. The wrath to come. Jesus is the only escape from the wrath to come. And they have believed in Him and they are living their life right now in anticipation of His return. And so all of these things, these fruit of the Gospel in their life are showing up because they are ultimately looking forward to Jesus' return. And that, men and women, ought to point us to some great application for all of us here today. The first one is this. Have you believed the Gospel? The Gospel is the very simple message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And in His Death on the cross, He pays the penalty for your sin. In His resurrection, He offers you new life. Just like He Himself was dead, uh, but is alive, so you are dead in your sins and are made alive when you put your faith in Jesus. That's the Gospel. And if you have believed, you have become a Christian, a follower of of Jesus, a member of God's family, someone in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells. But you can't get there by simple acknowledgement that these things are true. Amen? That is to receive the Gospel as only words. But yeah, I think that's right. I think that's true. No, no. You stake your eternity on that being true. You rely on it. You put your trust in that person who saved you. 
And by the way, God has no grandchildren. None. You will not be saved simply because some member of your family was a child of God. You must personally put your trust in Jesus Christ. God has children only, no, no grandchildren. So have you believed the gospel? Because, by the way, if you have not actually believed the gospel, there's no point in looking for any of this gospel fruit any more than there's any point in looking for peaches on an ornamental pear tree. Right? One is just as silly as the other. If you're not seeing gospel fruit in your life, it may be because your faith, such as it is, is ornamental rather than real. You feel me? You have to actually believe in Jesus Christ. You have to put your trust in Him for yourself. Rely on Him for your eternal destiny. Rely on Him to forgive your sins. And experience the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But if you've already believed the Gospel, then another question. Do you see its fruit showing up in your life? Now, please understand, I'm not saying you see the fruit of the Gospel perfectly manifested in every part of your life. You, the answer to that question, I'll just... Uh, cut you off now, is no, you don't see that perfectly manifested in your life. I don't see it perfectly manifested in my life either. None of us do. We're sinners. We're still sinners. Even though we're saved by grace. But what I'm asking is this question. Do you see some of these signs of eternal life in your life? If you think, nope, uh, not at all then maybe you really do need to circle back to the first question and ask, have I believed the Gospel? But it may be that, that you have a too pessimistic view of your own life. Because I can tell you as your pastor that I know and love every single one of you and I see abundant Gospel fruit all over this church. <laughs> And so, so many of you. And that encourages my heart like you cannot believe. I rejoice over you because I see these things all the time. I see people who, who make it their business to share the Gospel. I see people who have left their former manner of life and are now pursuing a brand new one. I see people who... Uh, have ongoing repentance. I see people who are living in light of Jesus coming back. I see these things in you. And I want you to rejoice, not only with me, but in your own heart, over what that ought to tell you. That I am a child of God. I'm really, a, like, Jesus really is alive in me. Right? Because sometimes we can get real pessimistic and real discouraged, right? And we can go, oh, boy, I got so far to go. Is that true? 
Yeah. We have a long way to go to get from where we are today to attaining the righteousness of Jesus, to, to as Paul, Paul says in Ephesians, to grow up to him uh, into the measure of, st- of the stature that belongs to Christ, right? And when I look at me in relationship to Jesus, I'm a midget, right? I'm hoping for hobbithood, any kind, right? <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe full size by the end of my life, right? I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to be real honest, right? But is there growth? Yeah. And that growth and that transformation is reflective of the fact that we really do belong to Jesus because God really does love us and He really did choose us and He really did save us, not just in the gospel coming to us in words, but in the Holy Spirit working and changing and saving and delivering us from a moment of full conviction into a life of progressive transformation. Amen? So be encouraged today. Remember to rejoice. Remember to keep looking for these things to show up in your life. Because you are a child of God. And we should expect to see them because the Holy Spirit is alive in you. Amen? Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Because you are a child of God. You are a person whom He loves and has loved from eternity past. And He is working in you to produce this kind of fruit. Amen? So we need to rejoice together. And we're going to do that by praying together. And then we're going to sing together. And then Kenton is going to commission us out of this place here for the week. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You don't simply ask us to trust in Jesus and hope that we that we did it right with no me- measurable outcome that we can see that indicates to us that we actually believe. But you not only give us the Holy Spirit, you produce fruit in us according to the new nature that we have received from Him. Signs that tell us, no, I really am a child of God. I really am one whom God loves. I really am a member of His family. I really am someone who was chosen from before the foundation of the world to be yours. Father, help us to be encouraged today as we go out and help us, Father, to produce gospel fruit this week in the world as we encounter lost people who need to hear the gospel and have the Holy Spirit come to them with full conviction that they may experience your love and your peace and your transformation as well. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.